This evening, we turn, as has been said numerous times, to the book of Judges. We are in the Old Testament. It is a little after the after Deuteronomy, before 1st and 2nd Samuel, you'll find it towards the front. And we, this evening, are reading Judges 4. So we're looking at this cycle that is connected with the person of Deborah. Now, the story of Deborah is told in two ways in Scripture here in Judges. You have our chapter 4, which is a narrative version of the story. And then, if you flip over to chapter 5, which we unfortunately will not be reading this evening, it is the song of Deborah. So then you get her story, the story we're going to walk into this evening, told in poetry, told in song. So both story and song tell this cycle in Judges. But because there is so much richness and too much just to unpack, we're going to focus on the story version. And I encourage you after this evening to, to open up the poem, to open up the song, and see the, the different ways in which that also speaks to God's action in our story this evening. So that's your homework. You're going to go from this place and you're going to read Judges 5, the song of Deborah. And hopefully, as we walk into the story, we'll whet your appetite and you'll just have to go home and hurry and read it. For us this evening, our portion of scripture, Judges chapter 4. Listen then for the word of God. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim, because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. Deborah sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali. And she said to him, The Lord, God of Israel, commands you, Go. Take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and I will give him into your hands. Barak said to Deborah, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and he pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim, near Kadesh. That's just a side note. We'll get back to that later. <laughs> when they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him from Harosheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River. 
Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? And so Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. And at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth Goyim. And all the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a single man was left. Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Haber the Kenite, the aforementioned one up above. Because there were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Haber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, come, my lord, come right in. Don't, don't be afraid. And so he entered her tent, and she put a covering over him. I'm thirsty, he said. Please, please give me some water. And so she opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer, went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. And she drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Brock came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to him, meet him and said, Come, she said. I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went into her, in with her, and there lay Sisera with a tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. I'm going to take a sip of water before we get into this one. Here we are again. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Again. God's deliverer is now dead, and the cycle, as we have seen, is going to repeat itself. It's been 80 years of peace since the left-handed judge sunk his sword into the fatty flesh of a foreign king and save God's people by doing so. It's been 80 years of flourishing, 80 years of safety, which means it was also 80 years enough to forget the God who saved them in the first place. 80 years was apparently sufficient time to turn back to their evil ways yet again. So here we are, Judges 4, again. Israel is sold into the hands of a foreign king, this time Canaanite, slightly different. It's a king with an army of 900 iron chariots, which we might not think of much when we hear them because, I mean, how scary are chariots? You got to think of them as the armor-clad tanks of their time. It made them unstoppable. It gave them the, the technologically advanced military stuff to take on any enemy they wanted. Back in chapter 1, we're even told that the tribe of Judah, when they were supposed to be clearing out all of the enemies of God, they actually backed off of the people who lived on the plains because, what did they have? Iron chariots. 
So the tribe of Judah was like, we hear you, God, but they have chariots. We're going to leave them be. We, we, we know we're outmatched, and we're just, we're just going to walk away from this one. They're the armor-clad tanks of their time. And at the head of this impressive, informable, and technologically advanced army is Sisera. And with him as the head of the army, the Canaanite king extended his rule over the Israelites. And he was not a kind and benevolent king. God's people suffered for two decades under his rule, under his oppressive rule. So a century has gone by since God last raised up a judge. It's a hundred years. It was a century of 80 years of peace, two decades of oppression, and apparently 20 years was just enough to make the people cry out to the Lord again. Help. Help us and have mercy. Help. And we've got this by now. If you've been traveling with us in the series and the evening services, we kind of know the drill. It's the same as with Othniel and Ehud. God will raise up yet another deliverer when his people cry out because that is just who God is. That is his character, his love toward his people. So with Othniel, when they cried out, we're told in scripture that the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenez, who saved them. And then when they did evil again and they cried out again, we're told in scripture, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, the left-handed man, son of Gera. Got it. People cry out. God immediately raises up a deliverer. So who is it this time? Who gets to be the lucky guy? But did you notice in our reading that that line is not in this story? There is not a line of God's people cried out and he raised up for them a deliverer so-and-so. We, we get verse 3 where it says, they were cruelly oppressed, Israel, they were cruelly oppressed for 20 years, and then they cried out to the Lord for help, period. That's different than the stories that have come before. We're not given the name of the one who is the judge. Instead of the line, that we've come to expect. The story takes us, it zooms us in to a palm tree with a judge, a leader, holding court beneath it. A leader who is already leading Israel, it doesn't have to be raised up because they're already there. A prophet who is already speaking to God's people on God's behalf. That's a woman named Deborah. And I love, I love the way that this particular prophet judge is introduced in scripture. Because first, the Hebrew here in this passage draws attention to the fact that Deborah is a woman. It does not shy away. It's not trying to be like, oh, yeah, don't mention, but uh, she's a woman. It's crystal clear. The way that she's introduced in this line here uh, in our translation, it says, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. The Hebrew is actually Deborah, a woman, Isha, a woman prophet. Just in case you didn't get it, Deborah, a woman, a woman prophet. It's, it's duplication, just to make sure you got it. And, and, and the phrase, wife of Lapidoth, isn't entirely crystal clear, which lends it 
So the NIV goes towards wife of Lapidoth, assuming that Lapidoth is a man. Lapidoth means torches. So the Hebrew here is actually, wife of Lapidoth is woman of torches, okay? But often when you have a man's name in, in, in Hebrew, it's always followed by son of so-and-so. You don't get that here. So there's, there's a way that you can hear this, woman of torches, as a description of Deborah, not her marital status, that she's a woman of torches, a woman of fire, or to soften the translation for English ears, she's a fiery woman. So what you get is you get Deborah sitting under a palm tree. She's a woman, a woman prophet, a fiery woman, and she's leading Israel at the time. And I, gotta, I just love that. Okay. That is not what we're expecting, is it? it? It doesn't quite fit the picture of a judge that we've seen so far, or that we're kind of conditioned to look for in Scripture. And, and what's odd, aside from the way she is introduced and the fact that she's a woman, is that she's already there. She's already leading. She's already judging disputes. She's already a recognized leader of God's people. She doesn't have to be raised up. Deborah's already there. By not naming the judge here in Judges 4, by not naming explicitly who the deliverer of Israel is in this cycle, like with Othniel, like with Ehud, this story leaves us wondering at the beginning, who's the deliverer? Who, who exactly is the judge that God is raising up to save his people? Is it Deborah? I mean, she's the first one we're introduced to. She's already leading Israel. She's already a prophet on top of it all, something that the other judges, the only other judge who's a prophet and a judge is Samuel. So she's kind of a big deal. Plus, her name is in the chapter headings in our Bible, so it's got to be her, right? And while I would love to focus on Deborah for more than obvious reasons, it is not clear that she is the one immediately. Because here is what Deborah does next. She sends for a man named Barak, son of Abinoam. And, and this is one moment where it does show Deborah's respect and authority with God's people that Barak comes to her. There's about 75 miles of difference, of distance between where she is and where she summons Barak from, and he comes to her, to her palm tree. And so he comes to her palm tree near the Sea of Galilee to hear this woman, woman prophet, fiery woman, give him a word from the Lord. And this is the word he receives. The Lord God of Israel commands you, go, take 10,000 men and go up against Sisera and his army, and I will give them into your hands. Oh, okay, 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 I got this. Barak is the judge, right? She's the prophet, but here's the deliverer that God is raising up, right? Barak, son of Abinoam, commander of God's army. He's the one to go mano a mano with Cicero, the commander of the enemy king's army. We got this. Two equals, they're going to clash it out, and we've got this. Barak, the judge. Barak, the deliverer. Barak, the military leader. And 
as we would expect from this judge, this military leader, he rushes off immediately, follows God's command, and goes and takes on Sisera and wins, right? Wrong. Barak, whose name means lightning, amusingly enough, does not strike fast. He doesn't rush off to help God's people immediately like a Marvel superhero swooping in and, and saving the people down below from imminent death. He has a question. If you go with me, Deborah, I will go. But if you do not go with me, I won't go. Now, I'm reading it with a certain tone, but how do you hear his response? How do you hear Barak's words? Is his caution, is he being cowardly? That he needs to hide behind a woman? Is it doubt in God's command? Is he, is he being disobedient? Is he being unfaithful with his kind of condition? Is he making sure that Deborah actually means what she says? That she's willing to risk her life by leaving her palm tree and going with him into battle? Does he just want to keep God's prophet close by just in case God changes his mind? And he doesn't have to travel 75 miles to get that change of mind. How you hear his question, his kind of statement of caution, determines how you hear Deborah's response. Is she rebuking him? Is she assuring him, certainly I will go with you? Is she warning him that the glory won't be his going into this battle and he should know that up front? So Deborah replies, certainly I will go with, as if that was never in doubt. But because of the course you are taking, Barak, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Okay, 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 okay. So Deborah is the judge. Hands of the woman, Deborah's the one we know about, Deborah's the judge. Okay, got it. Sister will be delivered into her hands, case closed, she's the judge. Got it. But we know the story, and it still has a few more surprises for us. So Deborah and Barak, these two leaders together, go up to Mount Tabor, as the Lord commanded. They're ready for battle, they're ready to attack, they're ready to face down this unstoppable army of tanks coming at them, and they're just foot shoulders, soldiers kind of waving their, their swords. And Deborah gets to be the one to kind of having that, that moment in any kind of like war movie where like the, the, the captain stands up and kind of, kind of ramps up the soldiers by a rousing speech. So Deborah gets to have that moment where she says, go, today is the day, go fight, attack. And then they stream behind Barak and there's 10,000 men streaming down the hill to victory to the utter demise of their enemies. They're saved, they're delivered, their cry has been answered, the enemy is gone. Against incredible odds, the Lord routed them before them. The story should end there. With every enemy soldier defeated, 
the army destroyed, the rule of a cruel king broken and overthrown. But where is Cicero? Where did he get off to? So Deborah is up on Mount Tabor. Barak is off pursuing the enemies back to the enemy's camp in Hagoyim. And the enemy of God's people is running the middle way, away from both of them. And here the story takes us away from the battlefield, out of scene, to a nearby tent, under a great tree, then, all of a sudden, there's this surprise third contender for the role of judge in this cycle. With no horse, no chariot, no army, no power, Cicero abandons his men like a coward, hosts it to the tent of Haver the Kenite, because they're allies, probably even the guy who worked on the iron chariots, because the Kenites are ironsmiths. So Haver probably kept close to the battlefield, because he's the guy who's going to fix those chariots that were going to run down the Israelites. So he's going to be safe. And then he's met by Haber's wife, Jael, who beckons him into her tent with kind words. Come, my lord, come. Come right in. Don't, don't be afraid. Come in. There are too many commentators and preachers who portray Jael's invitation and actions in a sexual light, that she's enticing him into her tent, using her feminine wiles to lure the enemy of God's people so he, she can kill him. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. I think that's sexualizing something that's not supposed to be sexualized. Because look at what she does. Look at the way it's described. She tells him not to be afraid. She covers him up with a blanket. She gives him warm milk when he asks for water. And she basically shushes this commander of an army to sleep. Shh, 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 don't be afraid, it's okay. It's not sexual, it's maternal. I mean, it sounds like a mother putting her son to bed, right? In all of her actions, everything that she's doing from the moment she beckons him in, don't be afraid, come my lord makes him feel safe, comfortable, taken care of, protected. That is right until that ten peg smashes through his head and puts his head to the ground dead. That moment, not so much. And here, God's words through Deborah are fulfilled. Sisera dead at the hands of a woman with cunning and a swift, strong arm. So is she the judge? Is she the deliverer? Because her crafty deception and gruesome inclination towards murder is reminiscent of Ehud, right? The, the previous judge, the one who shoved that sword right through the belly of the king in his private room. Both are assassins, taking out God's enemies behind closed doors with unsuspecting victims. They share an MO. So who's the judge? 
who do you think the judge is this time around? Who holds the honor? Who gets to be remembered as the one who saved God's people? Is it Deborah? Maybe you're still in the Deborah camp. You really want it to be Deborah. I'm kind of in that camp. Because this fiery woman prophet of God who's already leading and judging in Israel at the time of our story begins. She's a pretty good candidate, right? Is it Barak, the military leader who led 10,000 men of God's army to defeat the enemy at God's command? Or is it Jael, that crafty housewife turned assassin who single-handedly killed the enemy of God's people Fulfilling God's own word. Who is it? Who's the judge? For those of you who were here last evening service and you heard Pastor John's sermon, you're probably sitting back kind of smug thinking, I'm one step ahead of you, Pastor Amanda. God is the judge. Option D. And you would be right. Absolutely. By leaving the identity of the judge ambiguous, we, we are pointed to, reminded, to see God at work in this whole story, that God is the deliverer of the judge. It was Lord, the God of Israel, who was speaking to Israel through Deborah. It was the Lord, the God of Israel, who led Sisera out into the trap on the plains. It was the Lord, the God of Israel, who routed the enemy army before Barak and his 10,000 men, before they could even get down there. The, the song actually tells us that the way that the battle was won is that a wadi, there was a flash flood, and basically they just got flooded out in kind of like an Exodus story. And chariots can't run in mud, and so the Israelites had the advantage. God took care of that. And it was God, the Lord of Israel, who promised that Sisera would be handed over to a woman. And did. And that's how the story ends in Judges 4, too, right? The very end that we read, it says, On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. Yes. God is the judge. God is at work delivering God's people. God is the ultimate deliverer, the bringer of salvation, the one who hears the cries of God's people and gets to work saving them. But this evening, in this story, look at how God is at work saving his people. God was at work in this unlikely cohort of Deborah, Barak, and Jael, using them their gifts, their talents, their character, their foibles, their strengths, to bring salvation to his people. God prevailed over a Canaanite king through existing leaders, reluctant followers, and deadly housewives. And not one of those three could claim sole credit for the victory. Each one was indispensable to God's plan. God worked out his salvation for his people, not through a single knight in shining armor or a glory-hogging hero or a lone wolf or one named judge. 
but through a combination of people willing to be used for God's purposes. And the way that God is at work in the story of Deborah, Barak, and Jael is the way God is at work here and now in our own lives and through the church in God's world. It's a bunch of people with foibles and strengths, talents and shortcomings, but who are willing to be used for God's purposes. The church is not a place of glory-hogging heroes or lone wolves, but it's a cohort of faithful believers used by the Spirit in accordance with God's will to save God's people in the power and the name of Jesus Christ. God hears his people's cry, and God gets to work delivering them. In Judges, in Bethlehem, in Golgotha, in your life and in mine. And God will continue to surprise us in the saving work with the people he will use, with the ways that deliverance will come when we cry out. But we can always trust our God to be at work delivering those he loves. For we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For the Father did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with Christ, graciously give us all things? For if God is for us, who can be against us? Thanks be to our faithful God, who hears our cries yet again and is at work for our salvation in the unlikeliest, in the most surprising ways, through the most unexpected people. Amen. Amen. Please pray with me. Our faithful God and deliverer, we are your gathered people, your beloved daughters and sons, those you love, those you have called into this beautiful, beautiful thing called your church. And we come before you this evening with our own cries for help, with our own hope for your deliverance. And so I ask that you give us eyes to see all those ways in which you are already at work in those around us, the unexpected people in our lives, the ways in which you might be surprising us with your faithfulness through these people in our lives. And if you are using us as those faithful people, those unexpected ones, may we hear your spirits nudging in that as well. And may we obey. May we listen to you and go where you command, helping those you call us to, loving those you give us. And we are deeply grateful as your people that you are faithful to us when we are not, 
that you love us when we run the other way, and that you are always at work, seeking our good and drawing us to you. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, the one in whom we are your beloved, amen.